welcome everyone to Brandon Garrett's White Burkett Miller Chair Lecture. Uh, this is such an important occasion, not only for Brandon, but for all of us. We all know what it takes to produce articles and books. It takes a lot of long, hard, often solitary work. And we are so lucky to do that here at the law school and the larger university in a vibrant intellectual community of students and faculty together. We find on a regular basis, uh, and we seek out on a regular basis, opportunities for real intellectual interchange. We have workshops, and we are talking in the halls with our colleagues, and we are sharing papers, and we are teaching our students, and we're hosting uh, brown bag lunches on scholarly projects with our students. And uh, among all those interactions, the chair lecture, I think, is a really special one. Uh, it gives us a moment to celebrate the creation of knowledge, to celebrate the fostering of ideas, the improvement of the legal system, the improvement of legal education. Uh, and it's a signal moment, not only for the law school, but for the life cycle of a career. Uh, it allows for celebration and marks it in a truly scholarly fashion with a public presentation of academic work. So in a place like the law school, where we value both scholarly excellence and our true community, uh, the chair lecture is an ideal event that melds both of those values and celebrates the successes of our own faculty. The White Burkett Miller Professorship in Law and Public Affairs was established in 1975 by Burkett Miller, class of 1914, in memory of his father. Burkett Miller was a partner in the Chattanooga, Tennessee law firm of Miller, Martin, Hitching, Tipton, Lenahan, and Waterhouse. He died in 1977, uh, and he uh, gave a very generous gift uh, to the university, both for uh, this chair and also for the White Burkett Miller Center of Public Affairs, which most of us today would know simply as the Miller Center. Uh, and he created uh, scholarships in law and public affairs as well. The Miller Center is a nationally renowned uh, research forum dedicated to the study of the United States presidency and governance, and the law school frequently collaborates with the Miller Center. I know Brandon has done a number of events there. Uh, I have an affiliation, as does Cyberkosh and a number of our faculty. And when you think about this chair, a chair in law and public affairs, Brandon is clearly a perfect fit for it. It is intended to link the law with the public, to link scholarship and public engagement. And Brandon absolutely exemplifies the model of the engaged scholar. Open the Washington Post or the New York Times any day, you are likely to see him quoted, you are likely to see blog posts uh, by him, hear him on NPR. He frequently speaks out about criminal justice matters before legislative and policy-making bodies, groups of, of lawmakers, um, law enforcement, practicing lawyers. Uh, he is even more prominent, if it's possible, in our law reports than in the public sphere. He has been, uh, he is the number one cited law faculty member by state Supreme Courts. He is cited fourth most frequently, tied with Cyprakash for number four in US Supreme Court citations. And he is number seven among all law faculty in the country for citations in courts uh, by judges generally. So it is no surprise that the public and the judiciary and lawmakers want to hear from Brandon and that Brandon wants to speak to them. His background has prepared him well for such a role. A graduate of Yale College and Columbia Law School, where he won multiple prizes and served as the articles editor of the Law Review, Brandon clerked for Judge Pierre Laval on the US Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit after law school. He then worked for two civil rights law firms in New York City for three years on wrongful convictions, exonerations, police brutality, criminal defense, and employment discrimination cases. He arrived here in 2005 and has been here ever since. In addition to serving as the White Burkett Miller Professor, he is also the Justice Thurgood Marshall Distinguished Professor of Law. He is also a recipient of the Carl McFarland Prize for Faculty Scholarship here at the Law School. And in 2015, he was elected to the American Law Institute. Most important for the expertise that Brandon brings to bear on numerous legal and policy debates is the scholarship he has produced in the last 12 years. To call Brandon prodigiously productive is an understatement, and I refer you all to his CV on the web because it has pages and pages of publications. It is really uh, an experience to read and makes one uh, just awestruck. He is the co-author of one casebook and author of dozens of articles, dozens more commentaries and shorter pieces, and three books. 
Uh, most of his writing is on the criminal law and on prosecutions, and particularly on where we are failing in our criminal justice system. Some of these failures are due to rapidly changing areas of forensic science, which he explores, others to the power of, political, of particular defendants, and others to the quantity and quality of legal defense available. Some of Brandon's scholarship has begun with scholarly questions, and those scholarly questions lead him to congressional hearings, to commissions of the National Academies. But the influence also goes the other way. So sometimes Brandon is tapped for a national commission. He does work to investigate the issues of that commission, and then that leads to future scholarship. It is a symbiotic process between the problems of the real world and the tools the scholar can use to address them. All three of Brandon's books and many of his articles delve into empirical data in an effort to understand just where criminal justice practice, practices and policies go wrong. He does the ground level time, timely uh, work of reading trial transcripts, of ferreting out non-prosecution agreements and actually reading them, of looking county by county at death penalty data rather than taking a bird's eye view from the state or national level. In each of his books, Brandon identifies unsettling patterns, reveals them to the public, and proposes pragmatic solutions. And in tandem with that, he makes every effort to implement those solutions at the appropriate level of government and with the appropriate policymaking institutions. Brandon's first book, Convicting the Innocent, Where Criminal Prosecutions Go Wrong, received an ABA Silver Gavel Award honorable mention and a Constitutional Commentary Award. It has been translated in Japan Taiwan, and China. There was and has been for a long time much hand-wringing and hand-waving about DNA exonerations. They have shattered a lot of people's confidence in the criminal justice system by exposing how often we have convicted the innocent and let the guilty walk free. But it took Brandon to examine what actually went wrong in the first 200 wrongful convictions that were exonerated by DNA evidence. Looking at trial transcripts, Brandon investigated the causes of those wrongful convictions and revealed larger patterns of incompetence, abuse, and error. The evidence was corrupted by any number of things. Suggestive eyewitness procedures, coercive interrogations, unsound and unreliable forensics, shoddy investigative practices, cognitive bias, and poor lawyering. In the years since the publication of this book, Brandon has not only uncovered these problems, but has worked hard to fix them, and he has had enormous success. Virginia overhauled its model policy for police lineups and eyewitness identification. Further afield, Massachusetts overhauled its jury instructions on eyewitness evidence, citing to Brandon's work. His second book, Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise with Corporations, explores the tension and the gap between harsh sentences against individual, uh, individuals convicted of corporate crimes and lax enforcement against large corporations. He identifies the difficulties that federal prosecutors face when they target such corporations. And he identifies how structural reforms that are demanded by the non-prosecution agreements that are offered and entered into by the government and these corporations are usually too vague to have real reform impact. Again, and characteristically, Brandon offers concrete ways to, to improve corporate law enforcement by insisting on more stringent prosecution agreements, ongoing judicial review, and greater transparency. I won't discuss Brandon's most recent book at any length, as it is the subject of today's talk. Suffice it to say that it continues Brandon's tradition of asking important questions about the workings of our criminal justice system and answers them with data, insight, and a pragmatic eye for applying the lessons his scholarship reveals. Given this enormous productivity, one might assume that Brandon is cloistered away doing his own thing at all hours of the day and night. But that could not be farther from the case. Farther from the case. He is a consummate collaborator and institution builder. He reads our work. He puts together conferences and symposia. He interacts with our Innocence Clinic. He builds ambitious research projects that include so many others. He works with the library to build databases and then make them available to the public. This year, with John Monahan and Richard Bonney, he has established the Virginia Criminal Justice Policy Reform Project to promote nonpartisan, evidence-based policies that are both fair and effective as crime control. Moreover, Brandon expands beyond the law school 
and he has many collaborations with colleagues across grounds in the Curry School, the Batten School, and the College of Arts and Sciences on interdisciplinary approaches to criminal justice problems and their solutions. And I'm so happy to see so many of Brandon's collaborators and colleagues from around the university here today, as well as family, friends, faculty, and students. In other words, Brandon is the model of the engaged scholar, both in his engagement with the public and with us, his colleagues. We are lucky to have him. Please join me in congratulating the new White Burkett Miller Professor in Law and Public Affairs, Brandon Garrett. Thank you so much. That's, uh... to just stop there, but I would really also like to tell you about my book. It's, it's such a, it's such a pr privilege to, to have this new chair associated with me and to have, have done this work that Risa described here. And it's a special treat to get to celebrate the occasion of this, this remarkable chair uh, with the publication at the same time of this new book that I've, I've actually never given a talk about one of my books at the law school. Um, so this is this is actually a first, and what I'd like to do is give you a, a tour of this new book project, which is absolutely the product of the kinds of collaborations that Dean Gallagher was just talking about. So um, the book is, is called End of Its Rope. Uh, the idea that we would be talking at all now in a serious setting about the end of the death penalty in this country would seem like a ridiculous or a liberal uh, kind of fantasy. Uh, the Supreme Court tried to abolish the death penalty in the 1970s. It didn't go so well. It resulted in much more death sentencing than we'd ever seen before in this country. And uh, the purpose of my book was to explore something that on its face just didn't seem plausible. It certainly wasn't something that people had talked about more than a few years ago. Uh, it wasn't something in the cards. When I was a law student, I was first introduced to, to death sentencing, death penalty empirical research. Um, I'll just show you what, what made me want to, to write this book. And I originally came into working on this here in Virginia. And it was something very low to the ground. I was reading trial transcripts of capital trials in Virginia and seeing that in recent years, prosecutors were losing a lot. And that seemed weird because it's traditionally it wasn't hard to get a death sentence once you've convicted someone of capital murder. The jury has already decided this is like one of the worst of the worst murderers. They've sentenced this person, to, uh, found them guilty of capital murder. The sentencing phase traditionally wasn't an uphill battle for the prosecutors. The guy is guilty. Now we have to decide whether to sentence, usually a him, to death or whether the alternative life without parole will be imposed. Traditionally, like, you know, 95% of the time, 98% of the time, 99% of the time, the jury would choose death. And all of a sudden in Virginia, I'm reading these trials one after another, and prosecutors are losing. And it's not like a huge loss in the sense that the person's still getting life without parole, but the entire purpose of the trial is typically to get a death sentence. They weren't getting it. And I was wondering what in the world is going on in Virginia? Um, and then I began to wonder, well, what in the world is going on around the country? The death penalty is still incredibly popular. National polls, there's been like a modest decline in popularity of the death penalty. Some polls even suggest it's getting towards 50-50 whether the public supports or is against the death penalty in the abstract. Um, but you don't have a modest decline in death sentencing. You have death sentencing just, the, the floor drops below death sentencing in this country right around 1999. I was in law school in 1999. We weren't talking about the death penalty disappearing from this country. Uh, we were working on study, I was working with a two professors of mine, James Liebman and Jeff Fagan, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, on studies of just what a broken system death sentencing was, how we overproduced so many death sentences, there's no incentive for prosecutors not to seek it in a death penalty state. And it's not like more states have abolished the death penalty, a few states have in recent years, but they've all been states that never really did any death sentencing to begin with, states like my home state of Maryland, states like Connecticut, had a handful of death sentences over decades. Uh, you know, the 19, uh, states that have abolished it were not major death penalty players for the most part. And the 31 states that still have the death penalty include all of the main death penalty states that have always been kind of the heartland for American death sentencing. 
including states like Virginia, which is second to Texas in the number of executions in the modern era. States like Texas, of course, which has always led death sentencing in this country. States like California, Oklahoma, Florida. Uh, and so what, what is going on? This trend was the trend that I wanted to study. And I was interested in studying it because it says some things about what's happening with the death penalty, but also I, I saw it as a case study in what is going on with American punishment. If the ultimate punishment can do this, can rise and then fall, what does that say about incarceration, other trends in serious punishment that there's much more conversation about today? Some of it healthy, some of it not healthy, but it's a trends like this, complicated social trends associated with criminal punishment are the kinds of things that I think we have to be interested in and try to unpack. So you see that death sentencing shoots up in the 1970s. When the Supreme Court decides Furman versus Georgia, uh, the justices in the early 70s were seeing you know, a couple dozen death sentences a year. They thought that death sentencing was fading away in this country. Uh, opinion polls suggested it was fairly unpopular. The California Supreme Court had just struck down the California death penalty, which provided a kind of a template for the justices. And uh, there are these, there's a wonderful book, not to recommend other books, but Evan Mandry has written a, a wonderful book called Wild Justice, uh, the interviews with the, with the justices after Furman versus Georgia, where they were talking amongst themselves with their clerks saying, this is, this is the last we're ever going to hear of the death penalty, it's sort of, we're over with it. Um, that problem solved. Well, within months, there was an enormous backlash among the states. They all passed new death penalty statutes. They were trying to find ways to comply with the very splintered decision from the Supreme Court. And in 1976, death sentencing has reached heights never seen uh, in the years following the Supreme Court striking down the death penalty. And so, you know, you're going to strike down the death penalty? Well, we're going to sentence hundreds of times more people than we ever did. The states do that. The justices back off. They approve some death penalty statutes, not others. And then you see a steady increase after that sort of period of uncertainty in the 1970s, where death sentencing increases every year fairly steadily across the United States in the 1980s and the, in the 1990s. And then suddenly there's this drop off, and no one predicted it. No one had particularly good explanations that I felt like made, made much sense. That was what I wanted to unpack in this book. So just to give you a sense of just how much has changed in American death sentencing, I wanted to show you a couple of clips from, from a case. Uh, it's a case that it was a videotaped trial. You can watch this entire trial online, which is kind of amazing. Uh, the lawyering was, was quite good uh, on, on both sides. The, uh, in fact, the, uh, the district attorney who tried this case in Aurora, Colorado, teaches at JAG. He's spoken to my students here. Uh, the, uh, the trial was the trial of uh, James Holmes in the Aurora Theater shooting case. I know that was many mass shootings ago, but at the time, uh, I'm sure you remember some of it. It was the Dark Knight Returns movie screening, and in this crowded movie theater, Holmes comes in with you know, every kind of weapon, including machine guns, uh, armor, and opens fire in this theater. It was the largest mass shooting in Colorado history. There were 12 fatalities, uh, ages 6 to 60. Uh, there were 70 wounded, including just incredibly serious, serious uh, injuries. Uh, there, uh, uh, he, there was no question about guilt. You know, I've studied wrongful convictions. Uh, he, he, you know, readily told police what he had done and told them that his apartment was booby-trapped with all kinds of bombs, and so that had to be defused. Uh, and his lawyers uh, immediately went to the district attorney, who I'll show you in a minute, and said, you know, we can avoid a trial on this matter. Our client will readily plead guilty. Uh, in exchange for a life without parole sentence. It would be calculated as you know, 12 life sentences plus about 3,300 years for all the, 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 the 70 people who are, who are catastrophically sometimes injured. Uh, we will take that sentence if you take the death penalty off the table and we will be done here. The, the district attorney spent a lot of time thinking about this and deciding what to do. Uh, and I think the short version of the decision was that I'm going to seek the death penalty. If we, are, if we are going to have the death penalty in Colorado, what case would we want it for except this one? The worst mass shooting in recent memory. Uh, the mass shooting at the time with the most fatalities in the United States before the Orlando shooting. Uh, you know, what is the death penalty for if not for, for a murder this, this horrific? And so uh, three months of jury selection ensues. I talk a lot about that in the book because it was, 
It may have been the longest jury selection in American history. To find 12 jurors and 12 alternates that weren't familiar with this shooting in Colorado was a, was a really tall order. They went through 9,000 names over, over months. Uh, and picking jurors in a death penalty case is itself a complicated exercise. There may be members of the public uh, that are against the death penalty, but you can't serve on a capital jury if you have serious doubts about the death penalty. So they had to talk to jurors and make sure that they were absolutely open, even enthusiastic about the death penalty, uh, but to make sure that they could you know, hear the facts of the case, that they weren't automatically in favor of the death penalty for everyone. Uh, and so the judge asked those types of questions. Can you make a moral decision about whether to sentence someone to death? If so, then, and you haven't heard all the media about this case, then you're one of the 12. So that took three months. The guilt phase of the trial took well over a month. The rest of the guilt phase would take well over another month and a half. It was an incredibly long trial. Finally, the, the, the guilt phase has concluded, and the sentencing phase has concluded. And this is, these are the, uh, the attorneys making their final arguments to the jury, telling them, this is, this is what we want you to do in this case. This is the final decision. The, the life and death decision that you must now make in this case of James Holmes. So here's just a, a little clip. This is about justice. And when the judge tells you to use your individual reasoned moral judgment, just like we discussed in jury selection, this is about justice. Could someone tell you that a decision to impose a death sentence for this horror, that that is only out of vengeance, or that it is an act of revenge on behalf of the victims. No, you know better than that. This building that we're in is not the Arapahoe County Eye for an Eye Center or Revenge Center. Okay, maybe he's going a little too far there. <laughs> But he was, I thought he was doing a nice job of anticipating that the other side was going to say that retribution is wrong, that you need to think about the morality of this decision, you need to be open to mercy, and he was anticipating that and saying that justice requires nothing less than the ultimate punishment for a crime which could not have been more, more serious. Now, the defense focused on James Holmes, uh, who was not looking his best at the time of trial. He had had a quite severe mental breakdown. Uh, and, you know, in his mid-twenties, all of a sudden he snaps and has these paranoid, murderous fantasies. The defense wanted to describe those to the jury. And you could imagine that that might cut both ways. Is that a reason why he's an incredibly dangerous person who we cannot tolerate in, in, a, in a safe society? Does it show that he's just, he's incorrectably dangerous? Or does it show that he's not the worst of the worst because he wasn't in control and responsible? The latter is what the defense was trying to argue. So here's the defense lawyer from the Colorado Public Defender's Office. Right now, you have the opportunity to be the example of anger without vengeance, sadness without hate, justice without violence, and you have the opportunity right now to give accountability with mercy, compassion with understanding, and resolution with no more death. That was a lot of paired concepts, but the, the, the entire focus of the defense was that this is a reasonable decision you have to make. You shouldn't be going to extremes. You need to be open to mercy for someone who is, who is this mentally ill. They had a very nice discussion of the mental health evidence and talked about, you know, if you wouldn't wish schizophrenia on your worst enemy, then can you execute someone for that? And so they, uh, they, they presented a series of experts in the case. Four months before the shooting, 
From the very first meeting with a social worker, he said he thought about killing people but would not say more. When asked about other symptoms, he did not want to say because if he did, Ms. Roth would have to report him. CU psychiatrist Dr. Lynn Fenton says Holmes told her he had these murderous thoughts three to four times a day. Basically, it was more of the, the general thought and again, no, uh, just denying having any specific target or plan. So he's, he's consumed by murderous fantasies, and that's, that was the focus of, of the defense. The prosecutor said, well, but he wasn't criminally insane. He's, he's eligible for criminal prosecution. And the defense said, yes, but, but is he one of the worst of the worst if he's consumed by these, these schizophrenic murderous fantasies? Uh, the jury reached a verdict on day 65 of this trial. Would the defendant please stand for the reading of the sentencing, the final sentencing verdict forms? Final sentencing verdict form, count one murder in the first degree after deliberation. Jonathan Block, we the jury do not have a unanimous sentencing, final sentencing verdict on this count. And we the jury understand that as a result, the court will impose a sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole on the We then had to read for more than another hour because there were 12 verdicts and then 70 additional verdicts. And so, but the result is life without parole plus, you know, 3,300 or so years. The trial by all accounts cost something like $10 million and it didn't have to happen. The defense was willing to settle for the ultimate result in the case, which was life without parole. And so some of the victims bitterly complained, like, what did we do this for? Why do we have the death penalty? Why did we go through this uh, if the result was where we started? Uh, so I want to step back from that case. I'll tell you a little bit more about that case towards the end of the talk. Uh, but just to say how I approached this research project, uh, the two guys on the left were my, my professors in law school. They were working on this broken system study, uh, collecting data on the basically the rise of death sentencing, not, not the fall. So my, my 10-year-old teases me, he's like, why didn't you write a book about the beginning of the rope? Well, they, they, they did the beginning of the rope study. They, they talked about death sentencing when it was reaching its, its modern height and did a very detailed study of 1970s, 1980s death sentences. Uh, but they were only covering death sentences that were final at the time they wrote that study. Uh, that was my first introduction to really tedious case-level data collection. Uh, I'm not sure why that didn't turn me off of projects like that, uh, but as I was looking just at Virginia trials uh, and doing some work with them, Rob Smith, the one on the right, who's now with the Fair Punishment Project, said, look, look I've, I've collected some data on death sentencing in recent years, uh, 2004 through 2009, and he was working on updating that. He said, you know, those are easy years because there are just not very many death sentences these days. I would really love to have the entire picture of, of the 1990s and 2000s death sensing, but you know, there would be thousands and thousands of cases to code. It seems like you're a glutton for punishment in that way, Brandon, would you take that on? And I thought, maybe I will actually. It would be uh, a way to continue the work of, of my mentors, but I was really interested in what, what was going on during this time period, uh, which is really an interesting time period for me. Not, not the rise, but but this, this steady decline in death sentencing. So I wanted to do statistical analysis of that data. I wanted to see what we could learn from the patterns in death sentences during this, this period of decline. Uh, so it was about 5,000 death sentences. There was a high of over 340 in the 1990s. Uh, most of these people have not been executed. Uh, most of them will never be executed. Uh, this data is all going to be made available on our website so people can look at the maps in their individual states, but I want to give you a sense of it now. So one thing that we found is that death sentencing, we think of it as a state phenomena. We talk about the number of states that have the death penalty on the books, but death sentencing has become very much a county phenomenon. There are really just a handful of counties in the country that dominate modern death sentencing and you can see it through this word cloud, there are places like Los Angeles, Harris County, Texas, where Houston is. Philadelphia had been that way, although it hasn't death sentenced anyone for some years now, and just elected a district attorney who says he doesn't believe in the death penalty. Uh, some counties in Florida, Maricopa County, Arizona, and some other California counties like Orange County, Riverside. And then there are lots of little small names that don't appear very often because they didn't sentence very many people to death during those years. 
this may show it better. Fewer and fewer individual counties each year have death sentences. We just see a death sentencing concentrated in a smaller number of counties. And uh, I want to then see, though, well, what are these counties? What's going on in these counties? What's happening in these counties? One, one effect that I found, and this is a collaboration with a student, Ankur Desai, we're working on a paper <coughs> describing these results now. Uh, although I describe it in the book, we're still, still finishing the paper. Uh, what we saw was that at the state level, before turning to the counties, that in the 1980s, you had typically just regular local lawyers appointed to handle death penalty cases. That was true here in Virginia. It was court-appointed lawyers. You don't have many public defender offices in Virginia. You have some more now. But there were no states that had, or very few states, that had like an office that handled trials for death penalty cases. There's a growing understanding that handling a, handling a death penalty case is very different than regular criminal trials, including because sometimes the focus is not on whether the person did it or not. The, person, the focus is on your client, mental health, and involves social, social work training, really. As lawyers, do we know how to talk to the foster parents about whether there's abuse going on in the home? Do we know, do we know how to contact the right psychiatrist and understand the medical records to present really the entire social history, the entire background, the life story with a timeline of a person? That's a sentencing that we you know in an era where there are a lot of sentencing guidelines and very mechanistic decisions made about sentencing. Presenting an entire life story like that, not something that lawyers are trained to how to do. And it's the kind of investigation that social workers are trained to do and a lot of lawyers are not. Um, there's a growing recognition that that's what death sentencing is about. And you know, it, as of the last 10 years, most of the death penalty states create these offices. Uh, Virginia did in 2004, and in my small case study of Virginia death sentencing, I found that when, when they introduced those offices, which by the way, they introduced in part for cost-saving reasons, because uh, those offices have social workers on staff. It's unfortunate but true that lawyers charge more and bill more and cost more than other types of professionals. Social workers cost less, but also know how to interview uh, the, the foster parents and the guidance counselors and the neighbors. And so in Virginia, this cost savings measure is adopted, but you have these regional offices which handle death penalty cases only. And looking at the trials that happened after those offices were created, I saw that the length of the sentencing hearings doubles. All of a sudden, the bulk of the experts are being called by the defense and not the prosecution. And prosecutors start to lose. You start, more often than not, you have life sentences and not death sentences at trials in Virginia until around 2011 when death sentencing stops in Virginia. There hasn't been a death sentence in Virginia since 2011. And we are you know, the state that is second to Texas in the number of executions in the modern era. The law hasn't changed in Virginia. Virginia continues to have very broad capital statutes. Virginia has long been well known for the efficiency of its appeals in death penalty cases, very fast appeals. Um, and, and yet there are now four people on Virginia's death row which if there were four people added to Virginia's death row, that would be like kind of a, a medium-sized year in the mid-1990s. Uh, we saw this defense lowering effect around the country, that, that there is a strong association between decline and death sentences in the years in which these offices were set up to handle the trial function in death penalty cases. Whereas the states like Florida that have no such function, uh, they continue to death sentence at a higher rate. That said, even states like Florida, even states uh, like Texas that have no statewide office, they still experience a decline. All of the death penalty states experience this steady decline in death sentences starting in 1999. So I still need to look more carefully to figure out well, what, what else could be contributing to this trend. So a few other things. There is a great decline in homicides in this country in the mid-1990s, just before death sentencing starts to decline really at the end of the 1990s. And we don't know everything uh, about why that happened. There are a lot of different theories. Other types of violent crime and nonviolent crime also start to decline. There's this, this remarkable and enormous social trend that we don't understand well, and it's kind of an existential topic for all of criminal justice. Why do crime rates go up and down? We don't know. What we do know is that there are fewer and fewer murders, which means that there are fewer murders that could turn into death sentences. It's not a very good story for the people who believe that the death penalty might deter because murders go down in both death penalty states and non-death penalty states. It's also not a 
plausible complete explanation for the death penalty decline because if you see at the bottom, that's death sentences. I mean, out of the thousands and thousands of murders every year, there are a couple hundred death sentences, even at the height of death sentencing when there's you know, 340 of them a year in the 90s. And so you can't even see a difference in death sentencing as compared to the, the big drop in murders in this country. And there are a lot of murders which may or may not be death eligible. They wouldn't be plausibly murders where the death penalty would be sought. Although in some states there are very, very broad definitions for what counts as a death eligible murder. By some estimates in some states, like Colorado for example actually, like upwards of 90% of all murders could be eligible for the death penalty. It's just not sought in 90% of all murders. But this, uh, working with Alex Jacobo in the, in the law library, we did an analysis looking at these patterns and also looking at this county level data that I, that I collected with the help of lots of great students both at the law school and in Baton. Uh, looking at these death sentencing patterns. And we did find a strong association between the murder rates in counties and death sentencing. We especially saw that association if we lagged it by a few years. You know, the murder rates start to drop before death sentencing starts to drop, but that also makes sense. You know, the, it's not like someone is sentenced to death the day after a murder occurs. Uh, it takes some time for, for the investigation and for a trial to happen. And so when we lagged this data, we, we saw this fairly strong association between County level homicide rates. Individual counties with higher murder rates do have more death sentences on average. However, that wasn't the whole story uh, because rural counties, for example, uh, increasingly stop death sentencing. And uh, there are smaller numbers of murders in rural counties, but many of them have equally high homicide rates. In some counties with a very small population, one homicide produces a really, really high homicide rate. Uh, but just in general, rural counties just stop. And when you look at maps of particular states, it's really, really striking. In Virginia, you just regularly saw small counties across the state sense people to death in the 1980s and 1990s. Death sentences in you know, Rockingham County and Bedford County, places near here like Orange. Uh, as of the last 15 years, you just don't see that anymore. You only see death sentences in Virginia in large suburban, urban counties um, you know, Virginia Beach, Prince William County, Fairfax. You don't see the small counties doing it anymore. They disappear from the map. And the same in Texas, the same in Florida, the same across the country. You see the population go up in the counties that are still doing death sentencing. You see the average income going up. It becomes more of a luxury item for these larger and wealthier counties. So we then see this. Homicide rights matter for death sentencing. But we see a very, very powerful white lives matter effect. What we see is that there's a very strong connection between death sentencing in counties and the number of white victims of homicide in those counties. We tried, really, Alex Jacobo tried. He's the one who has statistical stills and not me. Multiple, multiple models looking at relationships between counties, within counties, and using a number of different types of regressions could find no relationship between black victimization of homicide and death sentencing. And uh, there is a lot of black victimization of homicide. There are a lot of black victims in murders. Uh, that there was no association between the victimization uh, and the black population in these counties is striking. There are more to those findings. We're writing them up separately in a work that is going to take some time. But you see even stronger effects where you have counties with a substantial black population. Those counties react even more strongly to white victimization of murder and death sentencing. And it's also interesting that it seems like over time this the, the spread is increasing. Uh, and we'd like to look at that some more as well. But this suggests that, okay, murders matter. Homicide rates matter for death sentencing, but only for some victims. And this is, this is consistent with every detailed state-level study that's been done of death sentencing beginning with the well-known Baldus studies that the Supreme Court considered in McCleskey versus Kemp, where there was just a, a much stronger association, much greater likelihood that there would be a death sentence if the victim in the murder was white versus black. Uh, one final effect that I want to talk about, we saw an enormous, in terms of the size of it, it was the largest we saw, just a connection between prior death sentences and whether a county is going to death sentence someone in a given year. And so, and no matter which way we looked at it, we looked at it like the sum total of prior death sentences in the last five years, 10 years, just whether you've had one death sentence in the last year, one death sentence in the last two years, three years, seven years, whatever it was, this enormous path dependency effect. 
where death sentencing in a given year was a product of prior death sentencing patterns. Uh, one theory of this is that this has to do with the preferences of prosecutors. That having death sentenced before, they figure we can do this. They may assign prosecutors. There may be a team with experience, a capital office within the prosecutor's office. Uh, if you're specializing in those trials and you're doing these high-profile murder, murder trials and you're winning these successes, you want to keep doing it. We know anecdotally that some offices absolutely did adopt policies encouraging the formation of these units, putting resources into death penalty trials, bringing in more resources to bring these trials. Uh, but that said, it could be, have nothing to do with the path dependency among the prosecutors. It could be that the jurors in that county are really pro-death penalty, that the judges make trials go easier in death penalty cases. They run for re-election saying, you know, I, I presided over 10 death penalty trials. They're all going to get the chair vote for me. Uh, the flip side of this, though, is that as death sentencing declines, once you have offices that lose death penalty trials and they don't get that death sentence that they were hoping to get, that this path dependency undoes itself. And we don't see, we see hardly any counties <coughs> in our data where death sentencing declines and then it comes back in any way. One exception was Maricopa County, which went wild with death sentencing, which had faded away for about three years under a new prosecutor. And, 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 and then that was a disaster. It sort of imploded and then the whole office really imploded and the guy got voted out. Uh, but it, it, it may add support to this idea that with death sentencing fading away, that that's itself a trend that will have some of its own momentum. So a few other things that I expected to see and didn't, and I was surprised not to see. I thought that wrongful convictions might matter, and that these high-profile death row exonerations that I'd already studied, I'd read every single trial, these people who've been freed from death row by DNA testing, I thought that states that had those exonerations, that they're covered in the news, they're high profile, maybe that would, that would reduce the number of death sentences in that state. Uh, some of these cases were absolutely poster child death penalty cases. I talk in the book a lot about the case of Henry McCollum and Leon Brown. That was the case of, uh, it was featured in attorney general ads in North Carolina. In multiple elections they said, you know, my opponent wants to vote for the Racial Justice Act to look at race and death penalty. They're gonna free people like Henry McCollum who raped an 11-year-old girl with a gang of brutal murderers and then describing the murder in horrible detail as a really, really gruesome killing of this 11-year-old girl. Uh, it, was, it was literally a poster child case. And in 1994, when Justice Harry Blackman says, I'm done with the death penalty as a Supreme Court justice, this famous line, I shall no longer tinker with the machinery of death, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia responds, uh, and says, in that case, Collins versus Collins, he says, well, you know, there's this other case in our docket this term, the case of Henry McCollum. We haven't gotten to that case yet, but I want to talk about that case, because he says, how enviable a death by lethal injection compared to what the victim went through in North Carolina in this case of McCollum and Brown. That, you know, lethal injection, that's like, that's, that's pleasant compared to the brutal, brutal death of this 11-year-old girl. That's what we have the death penalty for, uh, you know, you weak-kneed Justice Blackman. Um, and then, you know, after 30 years, DNA testing is done. The evidence had been said to have been lost only because an innocence commission with subpoena power was created in North Carolina was it found. Uh, they, they get these tests. He's freed from death row. His brother was serving life, not death anymore. He's freed too. And these cases have an impact. Uh, well, they don't have an impact on the numbers of death sentences we found. We found that the states with the most death row exonerations are also the states that have the most death sentences. It seems to just be a product of death sentencing that a certain percentage of them result in exonerations. But there is no detectable impact on the number of death sentences. Now it could be that these wrongful convictions are impacting public opinion in some broader, harder to measure way. And in opinion polls, people do raise wrongful convictions as a concern more often than they did 10, 20 years ago. Uh, but we certainly couldn't see anything in terms of like the death sentencing patterns themselves. Uh, Something else that I didn't expect to see. Many lawyers had said, oh, you, you, you want to study why death sentencing is declining? I'll tell you why it's declining. It's declining because we now have life without parole. And so the jury in the Aurora case, they could decide to give Holmes you know, life without parole, but they know he's never going to walk the streets again. Uh, whereas in Texas, in Texas, prosecutors avidly opposed life without parole because they wanted the jury to, they wanted to be able to tell the jury, you know, this person could get out life. That doesn't necessarily mean hard life. Uh, if, you, if you want to be sure this murderer never walks the streets again, you better sentence this person to death because that's the only certain thing in this world, life and death. And so, uh, you know, states adopted life without parole at different times. 
Some of them adopted it in the 1980s, 1990s when they were eliminating parole for other reasons, just to have truth in sentencing. Texas is one of the last states to adopt life without parole. They do it in 2005, and so by 2006, it's being used in death penalty cases. And what we found is that there was no connection, no reliable connection at least, between life without parole adoption and death sentencing. There are states like Virginia that adopt life without parole in the mid-1990s when death sentencing is on the rise. Death sentencing continues to rise. And then there are states like Texas. They adopt life without parole in 2000, late 2005. Death sentencing had already begun its decline in Texas. It began to decline right around 1999, 2000, like it did around the country on average. And it continues to decline after. There's no sudden dip. The one thing you do see in Texas, though, is that while death sentencing continued its gradual decline, when life without parole is adopted, prosecutors go wild with life without parole. There's just, it was an incredible surge in its use. I'm sure plenty of that use was in cases that would have been otherwise eligible for life, but not the death penalty. And they talked about it at the time, that, oh, there's, you know, the Supreme Court won't let us sentence juveniles to death anymore. That's what our new life without parole statute will let us do. Uh, all of a sudden, intellectually disabled people can't be sentenced to death. Well, that's what life without parole is for. Uh, and in general, there, there's a, it's been a trend across the country, not in the same counties necessarily that are doing death sentencing, so it's a different pattern. Although Harris County, where you know, it's the ground zero for the death penalty in this country, also is the top Texas county for life without parole sentences. But we, we now have, Texas has a life without parole row that's 10 times bigger than its death row ever was. And in our country, we have a life without parole row of about 50,000 people. So death sentencing has reached the lowest levels we have seen in modern times. And life without parole has reached record levels that we have never seen in modern times. Uh, you know, if you count virtual life without parole sentences, life sentences so long that realistically the person can never be released before they, they die, it's more like 200,000 people serving life without parole or a virtual life without parole sentence. And that's, that's one out of every 10 people in our prisons. Our prisons are really being swallowed up by this population of people who have no possibility of ever being released. And so if Stories of individual trials, like the Holmes trial, are examples of jurors giving mercy. Um, this type of trend doesn't look so merciful because you don't have the same elite lawyers. It was the, you know, two of the top lawyers in the Colorado Public Defender that represented Holmes. That is a state which has a statewide capital trial function. You don't see that representation. You don't see representation supplied automatically on appeal through habeas, through federal habeas, in life without parole cases like you do in death penalty cases. In part for that reason, you don't see the exonerations in life without parole cases so much either. Uh, some of the few life without parole people who've been exonerated were people who represented themselves on habeas, were writing letters to the court saying, please test my DNA. The letters are ignored. Uh, so this is a, a very different type of problem that should make us feel less uh, pleased with ourselves that on the ground the death penalty has changed in its use. Uh, whether this data will impact the Supreme Court, uh, who knows, Justice Breyer seemed to have thought that it might, and maybe he still thinks it might. In a dissent, he cited to this county-level data, which provided some additional impetus to collect this information and make it available to the courts. Uh, he was focusing on these county-level patterns. I can certainly you know, add to what he said and describe the pattern over many more years and say a lot more about what's behind those patterns. Uh, he must have thought that at some point other justices would be interested in taking up this larger argument, a kind of an evidence-based argument about the state of the death penalty and whether it survives Eighth Amendment scrutiny. Uh, we are certainly in the territory that we were in before Furman versus George in terms of the very, very small number of death sentences in this country. Whether that will matter to the court, I don't know. It has mattered already to some state Supreme Courts. So the Connecticut Supreme Court basically repeated the structure of Justice Breyer's argument, cited to some of the same data when striking down in a permanent way, in a retroactive way, the, the Connecticut uh, death penalty. The last year, we had 31 death sentences in this country, as opposed to you know, 340 in the 1990s. This year, we have 19 death sentences so far. It'll likely be a new record low, maybe 22, 24 death sentences by the time the year is out. Uh, we still have had no death sentences in Virginia since 2011. What I think is even more remarkable is that although there are these handful of counties uh, that dominate modern death sentencing, those counties have also experienced the steepest declines. Harris County has not had a death sentence in Houston 
in two years. Um, Texas itself had three death sentences last year. If there were three death sentences just in Houston in the 1990s, that would have been really strange. I mean, there could be 10, 15 just in Houston in the 1990s. And so uh, not only that, but the new Houston district attorney says that she doesn't support seeking the death penalty. Same in Duval County, Florida, which was one of the top Florida death sentencing counties. In Maricopa County, after a district attorney had gone on a, a death sentencing sort of run and really taxed the courts, they couldn't appoint lawyers to handle all these cases, the whole thing sort of imploded with very few death sentences resulting. Both of the district attorneys that ran for his seat on both the Democrat and Republican side said, we're not, we don't think death sentencing serves much purpose here. And about half of the death sentencing that still remains in this country, uh, you know, of the 20 death sentences that we may get this year, of the 30 death sentences we had last year, half of those sentences are in California, which hasn't executed anyone in 10 years and has no legal way to execute anyone. The, there's a proposition passed where the voters said that we want to speed this thing up. The California Supreme Court recently ruled that no, we're judges, we do judicial review at our own pace. And so, you know, no. Um, and so, <laughs> Most of death sentencing in this country is in California where it's really just an incredibly expensive life row where the chance that anyone will be executed is much, much smaller than the chance that they will die in, in prison. So that's what we're left with, with death sentencing. I suspect that the Supreme Court isn't going to do anything anytime soon, and I'm not sure it matters. Right? This end of its rope story is about the death penalty disappearing because of a different ground game uh, and different um, attitudes and pressures among the counties that, that seek these death sentences and have to pay for them somewhat more than they did in the past. If you could have a two-day trial like they often did in Virginia, followed maybe, maybe a half day of sentencing, it didn't really cost anything to seek a death sentence, and you were going to get the death sentence anyway, so, so why not? That, that cost-benefit analysis has changed radically over the last uh, 20 years. So I want to leave you with two things. Uh, one larger question that I didn't have time to talk about, but I'd be really interested in your thoughts and questions about is, well, what does this trend mean for criminal justice more broadly? You certainly don't see the same kind of mental health screening and psychiatrists and experts like you did in James Holmes's case in regular criminal cases. And we just started in Virginia this year screening inmates at jails to see whether they have serious mental health issues. Just knowing whether, you know, by all accounts, most jails, um, you know, 40, 50 percent of the people in them have, have mental health issues, often not identified issues, much less treated, much less presented to a decision maker at sentencing to be considered. Uh, you know, regular criminal defendants don't have the opportunity or the, really the, to, to present their life story and their social history. And, and uh, even if they could, it might not even be relevant to the sentencing decision. But there is more of a move away from, from fixed sentencing in this country. There are more types of cases, categories of cases, where additional information is relevant. And I think it says something that for the worst of the worst murderers, people convicted of the worst of the worst murders, at least in theory, that you have jurors who are pro-death penalty uh, extending mercy. I think that's a remarkable thing, that people may be absolutely in support of the ultimate punishment in the abstract, but when they hear the life story of someone who does terribly violent things but may have been the victim of horrific violence in their childhood, that they, they think differently about punishment, confronted with that kind of individual story. So this is, this is what one of the jurors said in the Aurora case. And uh, there are three jurors that ultimately uh, said that they could not impose the death penalty. One of them was particularly adamant and cited to the, the mental health evidence. Uh, it was not that one who spoke to the press afterwards. In general, by the way, the jurors said that this was the most difficult thing that they'd ever had to go through in their lives. They describe PTSD-like symptoms from having participated in this trial. We think of jury duty as something that we want the public to take part in. It's a way to be a part of the system. But they describe you know, nightmares. Um, they saw horrific images, heard horrific testimony. And this is what she said after the trial. Well, we did our best to come to unanimous verdict, of course. And it was not possible. We each used our individual moral reason judgment. And uh, that's what we were instructed to do, and that's what we did. I think it's, it's very, very matter of fact. And she was repeating what the, what the prosecutor said we want you to do, repeating what the defense lawyer said we want you to do. This is a moral decision for you to make. 
the people are making that decision very differently today as compared with 20 years ago, 30 years ago in this country. Whether that can be the case, not just in these high profile death penalty cases, but in criminal justice more broadly, I think that's, that's our challenge. So hopefully this is an optimistic book, hence the springy colors, uh, <laughs> where the end of the rope for the death penalty can suggest paths for a new beginning in criminal justice. So I'll end on that more positive note. And I'd, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts and questions. Would that affect outcomes in death penalty cases? In one way, it doesn't. Death qualification disproportionately affects minorities. That more blacks and Latinos are opposed to the death penalty and get kicked off uh, death penalty juries. Studies explaining that to the Supreme Court were presented, and the Supreme Court said, we don't care. Uh, that's social science. Why would that interest us? Um, and, and so but what has been interesting, though, is uh, I, I did a very small study, I describe it in like two sentences in the book, looking at Orange County jurors, which is a pretty white and conservative county which still imposes a lot of death sentences in California. And we found a shift of attitudes which was remarkable, even including the, the majority of the participants who were self-identified white and conservative. They were interviewed in person, so we knew that they were white, we didn't know if they were conservative. Uh, but they, they very strongly said, you know, the, the majority of them, said that they were not sure that they could consider imposing the death penalty, and a huge percentage of the most conservative, like 30%, said we would be reluctant to find someone guilty of capital murder because the death penalty might then be in the picture. I mean, they were, they were nullifiers among the most conservative people. And when we told them that no one has been sentenced to death in California in 10 years, you know, how does that affect your decisions about the death penalty one way or the other? Even the people who are automatically in favor of the death penalty for anyone who commits murder, even they, about half of them said, oh, well, if no one's getting executed, I don't know. And then the question is, is it because it, you want people to be executed, so it seems pointless if they're not? Or is it because you think it seems arbitrary if no one's getting executed? What's, it seems like a strange punishment if it's not happening. We don't know. We have to do follow-ups. But we're seeing this, this change. It, it may make it harder for prosecutors to you know, racially profile in their jury selection if even the, the self-identified white conservatives have these grave doubts about the purpose of the punishment. So death penalty cases like attract more resources than other criminal cases. So you can't have these these teams working on you know regular misdemeanor, regular low-level felony cases. What some offices have done is to try to learn some of the lessons from death penalty cases, but in a more cost-effective way by say bringing a social worker on staff to rotate around to work on some cases where it seems like social history will be really helpful, but you can't obviously spend the same time on it that you would in a single death penalty case. And some offices have sort of raised money from nonprofits to do that. Some of them have found it in their own budgets. Just having this mitigation, this social history investigation as part of their job. Um, some offices have done something even more radical, which is kind of interesting, which is, okay, maybe we can't even afford investigators to handle all of our cases. What if we bring in the community to kind of crowdsource life history evidence? Like have people upload childhood photos and talk to their friends and just, kind of volunteer their services to take pictures, go to the school guidance council themselves, like as, as friends of someone being charged with a crime, to just bring in all of that kind of neighborhood evidence that can say something about who this person was in the community, what they went through, what positive contributions they made. Um, and so there are these, uh, these kind of community defense offices where they're crowdsourcing social history evidence. 
totally fascinating. And there's been some grant money for that, I think, because there's technology involved, so it must be something worth spending money on. Uh, but so there, I mean, there, or or it can be done like like in Virginia, where there's just a simple screening form at jails, just to at least identify people with mental health needs. That's something, and it's, it often wasn't done in the past. They're not even using like a trained social worker, much less a medical professional. It's just a screening instrument. It's a it's a two-page piece of paper with just some questions to ask to see whether someone has mental health needs. It may not be perfect, but it's something. So hopefully, you know, there are a range of solutions. Some of them will be too expensive to be plausible in lots of cases. Some of them we could do all the time, and maybe we'll start to do more of. There have been some studies done showing how the counties that are some of the top death sentencing counties were traditionally the counties that had lots of lynchings. Um, and that pattern particularly existed through the 1990s when you had lots of rural counties that were doing death sentencing. And some of those counties really didn't have very many murders. Like it was sort of like if there was a murder and it was a black defendant, there would be a death sentence. But what's, what's, been, what's changed really in the last 15 years is that those rural counties have just fallen off the map. And, uh, and it's instead these, these higher income, suburban, uh, or urban, uh, larger counties. And so some of that traditional association, these, these rural counties that have terrible Jim Crow histories, terrible uh, history of lynching, all of a sudden those counties are, aren't the death sentencing counties anymore. And so that's, and, and yet this, this, this troubling racial pattern does persist in, in this, different way focused on white victimization for murder. So I'm sure Brandon would be happy to answer more questions uh, afterward, but please join me in thanking Brandon and congratulations. Thank you.